0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We've made it to Friday once again on the Three Martini Lunch. Really glad you're along for the ride with us. Your stool is ready. Good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives as usual. And Jim... Good can be a sliding scale of how we define it. Sometimes it's bad news coming to light, which is partly true at our first martini today, as well as people finally seeing the light, which is also uh, true today couple different parts to the Andrew Cuomo story. I I know it feels like we talk about him every day, but every day there's more news here that just make this guy worse and worse. The big news came out last night from the Wall Street Journal that his staff uh, absolutely doctored the nursing home report, didn't just cover it up. They actually lied about the numbers. Uh, Melissa DeRosa, who was the one who tipped off the Democratic legislators to this, was actively involved with this, as well as other key officials within the Cuomo administration. We're also hearing from the Gothamist, Jim, more about the governor's personal habits in the office, including the fact that he likes blondes, particularly those in stiletto heels. Uh, also, that uh, if you went on vacation, you pretty much had to pack a an away bag to jet back to Albany whenever he wanted you to. And when you work for high-ranking politicians, that's not completely out of the line. But uh, this guy had an abusive atmosphere in the office pretty much all the time. And the the money quote here is, they push you until you want to be there. You want them to like you. We're all kind of waking up to the fact that we were in a cult. Somehow, a majority or at least a plurality of New Yorkers, Jim, don't want him to resign yet. But uh, as all of this comes to light, the insanity is also becoming clearer, which I guess is good.
1: Yeah. So if you, if you respond to these news items with horror and, and just maybe anger, right. That, that so many people who worked for him knew that what was going on around them was not normal and knew that it was bad, but just felt this sense of loyalty felt this need to that questioning anything going on around them would be seen as some sort of um, great betrayal or something like that. Maybe, you know, if you react that and it grind your teeth or you you know, pound your desk or you're frustrated or you, you feel a need to throw your computer across the room. Don't do that by the way. Um, you know that, I'll understand that. I read that Greg and I laughed so hard I nearly peed myself um, because like lo and behold, everybody who ends who's been working for Andrew Cuomo has been in the political equivalent of the branch dominions. Or, or the hail Bob, hail Bob comet cult, if you prefer. Uh, he didn't require Nikes, he didn't require purple robes, but he expected this absolute total unthinking loyalty. And those of us who were outside of this could see that, right? And the other interesting thing is that now you gotta look at everybody who is in that media environment that celebrated Cuomo for the better part of a year. Like I, I really would like these people to you know, stare at, you know, sit in the corner <laughs> and just stare and think about how you reach this point in life. There, there was a, I saw this like delightful headline where people were just befuddled. How could liberals be so fooled by Andrew Cuomo? How, Greg? How? Like, like you, you know what? Because you wanted to believe, because you absolutely positively needed to believe, particularly the more it became clear that like uh, Bill de Blasio and other, you know, prominent New York Democrats were making a hash of an absolute disaster of response to the pandemic insisting that everybody should go out to Chinese New Year, there was no fear of gathering in crowds, public transportation is safe. You, you know, And they needed a heroic figure to contrast with Trump and thus they were it was like this, it's funny, they make fun of George W. Bush and his faith-based initiative. And yet the entire Cuomo governorship has been a faith-based initiative. They just had to believe that he was just so good and that somehow, and it really turned, like if at any point your loyalty to a politician requires you to deny what is in front of your eyes or say lie <laughs> about people dying in nursing homes, this should be giant red flags. You have sold your soul, right? You are not who you set out to be when you decided you wanna work in politics and government. I, I, you know, there are a lot of people who are angry, furious partisans in this world who believe that the other side are motivated by malevolent motives. They, they do it out of a desire to oppress others or greed or nastiness. Or like. I believe that most people who ended up, who, who signed on to work for Andrew Cuomo, started out in politics wanting to do the right thing and wanting to make the world a better place. And along the way you get told, well, you have to do this. This is, way the, this is the way we play the game. This is the way we expect you to behave. We expect this kind of loyalty we expect you to completely obey every order that comes your way. It is very much like the atmosphere of a cult and the recruitment and the kind of psychological conditioning that goes on for people like that. And you don't have to believe in a hell comet or that David caresses Jesus to be find yourself in a cult like atmosphere. Some would argue the Trump administration had a cult like atmosphere. And Oh, by the way, if you spent the last four years trashing Trump, For his uh, narcissistic, egomaniacal personality and this unhealthy attitude, this power-hungry belief that he can do anything he wants and I can shoot somebody on 6th Avenue, that's fine. I hope you're doing the same thing about Andrew Cuomo because if if you think it's okay when Andrew Cuomo does it, you are not making the world a better place. You are simply enabling the cult that you prefer instead of arguing that our politics are not meant to be
0: competing cults of personality. Jim, sometimes my wife and I, especially if it's a Friday or Saturday, will watch one of these 2020 or Dateline NBC things. And last week, I believe uh, Dateline NBC had a special. I don't know if it was a new one or a rerun on the Nexium cult that was based in Albany. I'm sure there's a lot of good people in Albany, but it seems like there's at least a couple of cults that got some pretty good traction going there.
1: Wasn't one of their lawyers Gillibrand's father?
0: Oh, well, that I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Now, again, but there's no indication because yeah, this came up during her 10 minute presidential campaign. You know, a lot of people wanted to make hash out of it. I dug into it. There, there's really not any indication that you know, he was just hired as a lawyer to handle their legal issues. There's no indication he knew all the sinister branding women crazy stuff and all that stuff. But yeah, that you know, I, I too have found myself watching some of those cult you know documentaries and things like that. And it's absolutely fascinating to see how completely like in the case in the case of that one, like fairly really successful actresses. Yeah, fell under it and were utterly convinced that they were part of something that was, you know, joyously transforming the world. You want to get freaked out? Watch Smallville actress Allison Mack interviewing the guy who's in charge, Greg. She's reacting. You know, the video. It's as if Jesus had come down and said, "Hey, let's chat. I want to feel." She's that enamored and enraptured and
0: just, just unbelievably happy just to be in his presence. And it's, it's, it's unbelievably creepy. So Albany, be careful. I know there's a lot of good things you can get involved with in Albany, but uh, the Cuomo administration. <laughs> right, right now, the Cuomo administration is the second most
1: dangerous cult in Albany.
0: <laughs> We're for now. Of course, the media is part of this, too. And literally right now, Jim, I'm looking at the Politico homepage and John Harris, who's been with Politico for a long time, a longtime journalist in Washington, has a column entitled Oh, Yeah. Now we remember why we thought Andrew Cuomo was a jerk. It's all just dawning on them now. <laughs> Where have you been? <laughs> He's been around a while, people. This isn't news. Well, some of it's news, but not a lot of it. Not the not the personality, not the bullying, certainly. Did you just wake up from a coma, John Harris? Well... If you're going to wake up, you want to wake up from a MyPillow. But did you know that my pillow is more than just a fantastic pillow? Because now MyPillow has the same attention that they've given to their pillows, to their towels, and their sheets. Right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can buy one, get one free on all six-piece towel sets and Giza Dream Sheet sets. MyPillow towels have proprietary technology
1: that makes them highly absorbent. They're soft to the touch without that lotion-y feel. They've got a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. They're washable, they're dryable,
0: and they have seven colors to choose from. The MyPillow Giza Dreams bedsheets are made with the world's best cotton. Their sateen weave gives them a luxurious finish that will have you sleeping great. I can attest to that. Ten-year warranty, 60-day money-back guarantee on those also washable and dryable with a wide variety of colors and sizes. Right now, visit MyPillow.com to learn more. For Three Martini Lunch listeners, all six-piece towel sets and Giza sheets are buy one, get one free. All you have to do is use the promo code martini at checkout or call 800-874-0104. That's MyPillow.com, code martini, or call 800-874-0104 for buy one, get one free on all six-piece towel sets and Giza Dreams sheets. All right, Jim, double-headed bad martini related to vaccinations. Let's start in the Motor City, Detroit the city has decided it's uh, getting picky with vaccines. This is from Crane's Detroit Business. The city of Detroit declined its allotted uh, Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine doses this week as Mayor Mike Duggan doubled down Thursday on his reasoning for sticking with the vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer. He says Johnson & Johnson is a very good vaccine, but Moderna and Pfizer are the best, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that the residents of the city of Detroit get the best. Detroit would have received 6,200 of the J&J one-shot doses, but declined to do so and did not get more of the others to make up for it. Jim, I would say uh, just before we started recording, this particular news, this particular decision from the mayor had you more than a little upset.
1: Yeah, yeah, we we can just tell you listeners, Greg's like, Jim, please don't use four-letter words while discussing this during our podcast. It's a family podcast. Uh, Because I was swearing like a banshee. Right now. I'm looking at the statistics on um, Michigan Live, uh, data that has comes directly from the state of Michigan for Wayne County, which includes Detroit. At this point, uh, 43% of those 65 and older have been vaccinated. The percentage for people who have been uh, 75 and older is 43%. For those between 64 and 74, it's 43.8. So it's pretty consistent. So like, yeah, you know, four out of 10 is not bad, but you're not even halfway there and for those wondering, you know, the studies are basically saying that the Johnson and Johnson envelope, uh, uh, vaccine is 73% effective or you know 72% effective. The Moderna and the Pfizer ones, which are two doses are 95% effective. Would you prefer that everybody could get the Pfizer and one that was 95% effective? Sure, but you know what? 72% effective isn't that bad. And oh, by the way, you know what you are with no vaccine? 0% effective. So he's, this guy is turning down the opportunity, 6,000 things ready to go that you can get get you to 72% effective against these elderly. He's like, no, 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 we'll take care of it later. We'll, let, we'll run the risk of these folks getting exposed while we wait for more than 95% effective. And oh, by the way, this feeds into this notion that the Johnson & Johnson one isn't as good and you don't want to get it. And and you know well it's just well here's the nice thing about the Johnson and Johnson one you get the one shot you don't have to worry about another one three weeks later or four weeks later with Pfizer or Moderna it works gradually About two weeks you're a pretty good chunk of the way one month you're like at ninety percent of the effectiveness of the vaccine now I'm sure someone out there might be doing the calculus and trying to calculate you know. What percentage of a slightly less effective vaccine gets you there, but it would only need one shot, which means you don't need the second one and all that kind of stuff? Look, I'm operating on a very simple principle here. We want to vaccinate as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And we want to vaccinate as many senior citizens as possible as quickly as possible. There is absolutely no justification for this. This is not in keeping with CDC guidelines. This is not in keeping with any medical experts. There is no easy, there is no good way to say, you know, oh, we don't want that one. You know, if Novavax comes off the line, if AstraZeneca comes off down the line, guys, you got vaccines, use them. Don't keep them stair- stored in the warehouse from Raiders of the Lost Ark because you think, eh, they're just not that that good. I'm going to out, hold out for diet cherry flavored uh, Pfizer or something like that. Vaccinate people. And Detroit, if your mayor is running around refusing to vaccinate people because use use vaccines because he likes the other ones better, Greg, I'm ready to turn over the city to OCP. Not even RoboCop can save you if you've got a mayor as dumb as this.
0: Well, usually other cities are happy to see a product from the Johnsons coming to town, at least in recent years. (laughs) (laughs) Detroit? Detroit's maybe not uh, among them because they're always pretty horrible too, but... uh... Anyway, I had to slip one in there. But uh, Jim, it's not the only issue with vaccinations. Uh, one of the issues, of course, we've seen from Biden and especially the unions, is we got to get the teachers vaccinated. Some unions want the kids to be vaccinated for heaven's sake, which is just truly insane. Uh, but they say, you know, you're you're sending us in there to die if we're not vaccinated before we reopen schools. But now it turns out they're not even keeping track of which teachers are being vaccinated. AP reports states and many districts have not been keeping track of school employee vaccinations, even as the U.S. prioritizes teachers nationwide. Vaccines are not required for educators to return to school buildings, but the absence of data complicates efforts to address parents' concerns about health risk levels and some teachers' unions' calls for widespread vaccinations as a condition of reopening schools. This is affecting major school districts like Las Vegas, Chicago, and Louisville. And I'm sure others. So, Jim, um, uh, part of me wonders whether the unions are deliberately making sure that this status not as clear as it should be. I mean, I've seen plenty of teacher friends on social media waving their white vaccination cards. So wouldn't be that hard to check in with folks and set up a system for them to say, yep, got it or nope, not yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I am very pro. Let's let's vaccinate the teachers. I guess you just you know said in that previous one. I want to see as many people get the vaccine as quickly as possible. If a state says, look, we really got to get our schools reopened, teachers say they don't. Or, you know, some obviously some teachers will feel safe getting into the classroom if you're young and healthy. The odds of this virus causing a serious effect are pretty darn small. Not, not there's not no, not that there's no chance. But you're probably going to be fine. But if you say, you know what, I'm immunocompromised, or I'm getting up there in years, or I live with someone who's immunocompromised, or has some other health issue, and you want to, you know, if you don't feel safe getting to the classroom vaccinated, fine. Where we're now tend to, I think we're past 11 weeks into this process. It's getting easier and easier to get these shots. Let's get the, you know, if, let's get these teachers vaccinated and get them in there. I just find it baffling that according you know, a little further in that article, according to Johns Hopkins University, no state is publicly reported the percentage of teachers and school staff that have been vaccinated. And a whole bunch of cases, they're not even bothering to keep track of it. And I'm left scratching my head. Why, why would you not want to have that kind of data? And how hard would it be to, to keep this information? Like I'm sure the school districts know. It was earlier this week, I, I was baffled by the fact that so many states did not have readily available the data on how many schools are fully open with classes back, how many are doing some hybrid sort of thing where you know kids come in two days a week and they do online learning two days a week and some are completely closed. And we know this data exists. And at one point, I think it was the Vermont Secretary of Education who was like, well, I just don't feel a need to know that information. Well, okay, I do. <laughs> You know, like if you, the you're, and he's like, I think he said, I don't need to know that on a day to day basis. You are the secretary of education, right? It's not like I expect the state secretary of transportation to keep track of this. Like, why would you not want to have that data? You know, I'm not even saying, you know, this is not even an argument of like, you know, darn it, schools, why aren't you open? It's like, dear state government, why do you not know which schools are open and closed? Why is the? It's an Excel spreadsheet. It can't be that hard to to put this information together. And it's the same thing with. And they're talking about well, you know, um, you know, this is privacy concerns. You know, prevent us from tracking or publishing future vaccination data. Whoa, whoa, whoa! States are collecting, tracking, and publishing people's vaccination data. I don't need to know the teacher, you know, Edith Johnson is vaccinated. I just need to know this percentage of these teachers in this school are vaccinated. I think that would help reassure people. I think it would tell people, oh, it's safe to send my kids back. And I think it's a good measuring stick. Let's say if you set the goal of prioritizing the vaccination of teachers and you're at 15%, well, you're not doing such a great job. If by the next week you're up to 30 or 40%, okay, you're making good progress. Why are states suddenly, like, states require paperwork for everything under the sun but they don't necessarily want to keep track of any of the data. What is the point of all this? Can you tell them fired up at the end of the week, Greg?
0: (laughs) Well, let's get you fired up for saving money. How about that? Let's talk about Gabby, because right now everybody's looking to save money. There's costs that are always rising up everywhere, especially unexpected costs in those monthly bills sometimes. But uh, how'd you like to keep an extra $961 a year in your pocket? That's how much Gabby customers save per year on average on car and home insurance. And that's why when it's time to do your insurance shopping, you should use Gabby. This is the
1: time lots of folks are going shopping for insurance and Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples to apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance companies. We're talking about companies like Progressive and Nationwide and Travelers. You just link your current insurance account and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage that you currently have. Now, like Greg mentioned earlier, Gabby customers save $961 per year on average i bet that would be nice to have in your pocket every year. And if they can't find your savings, they'll let you know so that you can relax knowing that you have the best rate that is out there. And they will never sell your information, so you'll never have to deal with spam or robocalls.
0: It really is simple. It only takes a couple of minutes. You plug in some key information, your age, your uh, address. Uh, I can't remember exactly what all the prompts were. And like Jim said, at the end, you link to your current insurance policy so they know what's currently covered. And then you see what other companies will charge you for that same coverage. It's very simple. It's totally free to check. There's no obligation. But... Uh, in the end, you're probably overpaying on your current car and home insurance policy. So see how much Gabby can save you. Go to Gabby.com slash martini. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash martini. Gabby.com slash martini. All right, Jim. Joe Biden is obviously president. But for eight years, he was vice president to Barack Obama. And by all indications, he was a pretty loyal VP. Not Really reciprocated. He pretty much got talked out of running in 2016 uh, by Obama because he was uh, pushing Hillary Clinton at the time, even though according to uh, this new book from Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes called Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency, uh, Biden thought Hillary was a terrible candidate. Turned out he was right. But then in 2019, 2020, uh, Obama also urged Biden not to run, saying you really don't need to do this. He thought uh, Biden would flop on his face. Maybe he saw some of the same issues with speech and memory and cognition that we've been wondering about for a long time here. Uh, But he didn't want Biden to run. Biden did it anyway, obviously. But uh, this new book is also saying that instead of going with his former VP, Obama was really enamored with Beto. Yeah, Beto, uh, his only notable accomplishment other than winning a House seat for a couple of times was raising a lot of money and losing to Ted Cruz. Uh, But he made a splashy entry into the Democratic primary, says uh, uh, Free Beacon here, fueled by the support of wealthy Obama donors. So, Jim, fortunately for all of us, uh, Beta O'Rourke flamed out early despite his emphatic efforts to ban guns and all sorts of other crazy ideas, which I guess are now more mainstream in the party. But uh, what do you make of Obama pretty much stiff-arming Biden until the moment he was basically clinching the nomination in 2020? Yeah, well, the
1: first thought I saw when I had when I saw that story, is like, man, Amongst those empty suit politicians, game respects game. <laughs> um, and, and it was interesting because there were some people when, when Be- particularly in, in 2018, when Beto was attracting the big crowds and, and he was being treated as Lone Star Jesus, that there were a lot more people who were comparing to this, you know, uh, comparing him as a, the White Obama, um, that you know, or, or the Texas Kennedy, uh, or, or kinds of this, you know, this this sense of that, and. You know, I know people, those of us who bothered to look at what Beto O'Rourke had done in his you know, political career, uh, first on the city council for El Paso and then on uh, in Congress, it wasn't that much. And it wasn't the sort of thing that would have you expecting them to read like, a, you know, I think it was a 14 page profile of him in Texas Monthly uh, and a whole bunch, every other national press going there and just gushing over him. Um, so in that sense, I could see Obama recognizing himself in in Beto and saying, mm, "This this is the kind of fine young man I think my party needs more of." But the other interesting aspect of it is how much Obama and Biden, as much as they were seen as this weird buddy cop combination, there have been reporting over the years that indicated that, like it wasn't smooth sailing between the two of them. I think my one of my favorite anecdotes was that. But when they're both senators, Biden's at some meeting and he's speaking and he's just rambling and going on and on. Apparently, Obama writes on a note and hands it to a staffer. To please shoot me now. Uh, he just, you know, he the, the the Joe Biden of blathering malarkey and and you know, uh, rambling stories that we all see. Barack Obama saw the same thing, and it sounds like there were times where Joe Biden felt like Obama was kind of snubbing him or not necessarily you know, deferring to his experience and wisdom on these, not all the time, but just that it was not quite as smooth a a friendly relationship that these two guys, that it was kind of sold as the image to the country. Now, look, you generally, it's very tough to be in this, in, in president and vice president for eight years and not build mutual respect and not come to appreciate each other. So I'm sure these guys were, but the, the evidence laid out is very clear, but Obama was not interested in having Biden being his, um, uh, his successor. Uh, he certainly didn't encourage him in that. And the other kind of intriguing fact is, I remember this uh, anecdote of leading into the 2020 presidential campaign uh, after AOC had risen, and there was this recognition of the squad and this recognition that, like, there was a chunk of the Democratic Party, particularly the younger ones, who were significantly further to the left. Uh, as well as we've seen the rise of Bernie Sanders and, and things like that. And Obama made some sort of comment, You know, it was in a private conversation, but he said something like, look, I'll admit, I don't always understand where these grassroots activists are going, but you know who understands it even less than me? Joe Biden. Uh, now again, anonymous source, I suppose it's possible by Obama did, you know, didn't say it, but it sounds like the sort of thing he would say. It was a reasonably accurate one. And the interesting lesson is that Joe Biden, either out of stubbornness or just, you know, the right confluence of factors, recognized that there was a chunk of, of a large chunk of the Democratic Party that wasn't looking for Bernie Sanders socialism. And that wasn't quite looking for, uh, they, they wanted something akin to old reliable. And I think in addition to, again, again, Biden flamed out in those first three contests, everybody kind of thought, oh, well, that's it. That's, you know, he's, He's having another Chris Dodd moment, you know, another old uh, fossil from Capitol Hill who couldn't close the deal. Once the party looked, Democrats looked really hard at the possibility of nominating Bernie Sanders. Says, said, well, hell, we're not doing this. Let's go back to Biden. And one by one, you saw the Beto, Beto had actually already gotten out, but, you know, Buttigieg, Buttigieg. Yeah. and Klobuchar and all the others dropped out and the establishment unified behind Biden under the attitude of like, yeah, we can live with this guy. And it worked out well for him. <laughs> So I'm not surprised by this. And I think this kind of or the, the, the myth of Obama having these fantastic political instincts. Obama was really, really good at selling himself, whether it was Obamacare or his policies or the Iran deal or any of these other stuff that he did. He didn't actually was not actually an effective salesman. And I think his eye for political talent is a little overrated, along with a whole bunch of other things about him.
0: Yeah, his stumping for other Democrats over his eight years was terrible. It got clocked in two different midterms, special elections in Massachusetts and Jersey. I mean, everything just uh, everything just went terrible. Uh, I love the last line in this Free Beacon column uh, from Andrew Stiles: "Beto is currently thinking about launching a failed campaign for governor of Texas. So uh, who knows who would be up <laughs> against him?" In- in, in 22 i don't i think abbott can run again but i'm not sure that he will so i don't know what the landscape will look like things are getting tighter in texas but uh i think people even in the democratic party probably have beto fatigue at this point
1: Well, also just keep in mind like wasn't didn't biden say beto you're going to help me fix this gun control thing you know at least the big spots in the biden cabinet are filled
0: jim Which, that was I just, like in i March. just picture
1: beto looking at his
0: phone and, and waiting for it to ring. Jim, that was almost a year ago. You really think Biden remembers telling that debate? <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, you know what? If you make jokes about Biden not remembering things, you could end up like um, Julian Castro. nothing guy I didn't get a cabinet job either.
0: Yeah, I guess I won't be in the Biden cabinet then. Jim, see you on Monday. Have a good weekend. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Also, remember to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Tell your friends to do it too. Uh, We're very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Remember us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend. And please join us Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hey guys, it's Mock and Daisy from Chicks on the Right. We're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. From discussing topics
1: like cancel culture, what's happening to our new generations, crises in our nation, and even some high profile interviews, each week we touch on subjects that matter to us and matter to you. And we're not afraid to tell you how it is. So tune in every week to hear us talk about the things or even just get a good laugh. To find out more, go to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave Leave a comment or review and subscribe.